Zechariah 1, 18 through 21. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Summer. We have uh, been working our way through the book of Zechariah, which is what our plan is to do for the remainder of the summer, is to just kind of tiptoe our way through this book, which is a really bizarro and a strange book, but it's, it's primarily about the kingdom of God. But what's fascinating is that, you know, the Bible talks a lot about the kingdom of God, but it doesn't package it in this way. Zechariah is packaged in a way of these series of dreams and visions, and they, 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 you, you read it, and it feels like fever dreams. You know, you had a fever dream that's just like trippy and bizarro, and it goes from one image to the next. And the beginning of the book, there's eight of these, and this morning, we're going to look at the second one. We looked at the first one last week, the second of these eight. And it's really weird, but I hope you'll see it's really amazing. It's really, it's really fascinating. So I, I just want to jump in, and here's what I want to do is just two things. One is to try to answer the question, uh, what, what is this vision? What is it? What's actually going on? And then what, what does it mean? And then second, what does it mean for us? What does it mean? What's the idea? What's the basic point? And then what does it mean for us? What are the implications? How is this relevant? So first, let's just, just try to wrap our mind around what is even going on in this thing. Because it's short and it's bizarro. But if you look at it, uh, verse 18, Zechariah looks up. And it's almost like there's this moment of surprise. It says, behold, and he sees four horns, animal horns, which in his mind, he would have known what that is instantly. All throughout the Bible, horns represent strength and power. It's an image of, of power that uh, this is the part of the animal that is used to defend itself from attack. This is the part of the animal that's used to attack if it's a you know, predator that's going in. It's, you know, when a hunter kills an animal, they don't put the, the tail as a trophy on the wall. They put the horns. The horns, is the, it represents the, the animal's power and the animal's strength. And so this is, this is this imagery of a weapon that's used by this, you know, aggressive predator. And so he looks at it, he knows what it means, but he doesn't know what it's symbolic for. And so in verse 19, he asks this angel who's kind of functioning as his tour guide through these crazy dreams. He says, what are these? And the angel says, well, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Which means these horns represent these powerful nations that have come in and invaded uh, and, and kicked out God's people. And this is made explicit in verse 21. He says, the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So you have this image of these foreign powers that have invaded and attacked and destroyed and scattered and deported God's people. These are the nations like Babylon, the nations like Assyria. They've scattered God's people. And the word scatter is fascinating because it's often used to refer to sheep in the Bible, like when sheep scatter. And so you have this picture of weak, defenseless sheep that are being attacked by these powerful, aggressive, monstrous, predatorial forces. 
And then the image goes on. Verse 20, then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. Now, craftsmen are artisans. Craftsmen are people that work with their hands. They work with wood. They work with stone or metal. In fact, it's interesting. One of the Bible translations, one of the English Bible uh, out there translates it as the word carpenters, which is interesting. And so you, you intentionally have this juxtaposition of four on four. You have these four horns that are matching with these four craftsmen. And it's this juxtaposition of strength and weakness. They're facing off, they're squaring off together, and there's, they're, they're very unevenly matched. And so if you're Zechariah and you're seeing this vision, I would imagine this would be a little confusing because you're saying, okay, yeah, there are these big, strong, monstrous forces that are attacking God's people, and rather than God sending in the Calvary, he's sending in artists? It's like, okay, God, no offense to artists. We love art, but uh, they've got like, you know, theoretically, like you know, tanks and machine guns, you might say, and we're going into the battle with like arts and crafts, like glue guns and and markers. Like that's the that's that's the imagery. It's like it's almost like a joke. And so he asks in um, in verse twenty one, "What are these coming to do? Like, what can they do? This is going to be a bloodbath." And then here's the here's the response, verse twenty one. These have come, talking about the craftsmen, have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And so this totally just reverses all of our expectations that here are these powerful, aggressive, hostile forces, and in the end, they're terrified. In the end, they are cast down. You know, they lifted up their horns, they puffed themselves up, they exalted themselves, and in the end, they get brought down low. And here are these weak sheep defended by artists, and they are so humble and they're so weak, and in the end, they are victorious. And so those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And that's the vision. You think, okay, well, that's, you know, it's interesting. The point's kind of clear. The, the imagery is, you know, makes kind of sense. But this thing is loaded with implications for us. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time is try to tease out what, okay, what does this vision mean for us? And I really want to show you two implications of this for the rest of our time. Here's the first. Well, I'll give you both, and then I'll do them one at a time. First implication is that power is incredibly weak. And then the second implication is that weakness is incredibly powerful. So first, what do I mean by power is incredibly weak? Well, if you think about this vision, what it is is it's really a collision of two different kingdoms, two different value systems, two different ways of doing life. One, you might say, is the, is the kingdom of this world. In the kingdom of this world, the values are driven by pride and power and dominance. It's this way of thinking that if you want results, you have to be strong. You, if you want to see something done, you have to get out there and take it. You've got to go do it. In fact, this is how, you know, this is how evolution works, right? As you know, the strong eat the weak, survival of the fittest. So if you want to survive in this life, you better be strong. You better, you know, trample the weak and step over those that are beneath you and take advantage of those that are beneath you. That's how you're going to win. That's how you're going to survive. Kingdom of the world, horns. And then you have the kingdom of God, which 
looks so weak, looks so insignificant, so humble. It doesn't, it doesn't look like taking power. It looks like giving power away. It looks like service. Feels a lot like what it would, might feel like to be a sheep. You're totally vulnerable, totally defenseless. And yet what the vision shows you is that the ways of the kingdom of the world will fall. That that way of doing life is doomed to failure. That when you assert yourself in self-sufficiency and pride and power and dominance, it looks in the short term like it works and it, and it wins and it's effective. And yet in the end, it is incredibly, incredibly weak, incredibly insufficient. It collapses. The horns, the horns are terrified and, and collapse in the end. And this is true um, in lots of different ways. Let me give you two examples of this. Uh, one is kind of a ridiculous behavioral example. The other is a historical example. Behavioral example. Uh, Aziz Ansari, famous stand-up comedian, he has this bit that I really appreciate in one of his um, stand-up specials where he says this, quote, I don't dislike anybody based on race, religion, sexuality, anything of that nature. But if you're a white dude in a bar with a backwards baseball cap and a button-down shirt, there's a pretty good chance I hate you. And, and he goes on to explain it's because these guys, the, the white guys in the bar with the button-down shirt and the backwards hat, are the people that when someone accidentally bumps into them, they're the people that are like, hey, watch it. We won't have a problem here. Like, these are the people that, like, when you accidentally bump into them, they want to punch you. Like, they want to fight. And he's making fun of this whole kind of stereotype. But I was thinking about that and thought, how fragile of a sense of self do you have to have where if somebody bumps into you, you have to defend your honor. You have to defend yourself so much that you want to you physically hurt another human being because they accidentally bumped into you in a crowded bar. And yet what it shows you is that this principle is in place that the, the machismo and the bravado actually exposes a real inner weakness, a real uh, insecurity, a deep inner fragile sense of self. Now, that's a ridiculous example. Here's a, uh, here's a historical example. The Christian church came into existence, you might say, in the first century, A.D., right in the middle of the, the wealthiest, most powerful global superpower at the time, the Roman Empire. And the Christian church was made up of peasants and tax collectors and fishermen. They didn't have resources. They didn't have status. They didn't have any power. And yet, here they are in the middle of this cruel, massive war machine, and Rome does not like the Christian church. So much so, they tried to obliterate it. So they would feed Christians to lions. They would saw Christians in half. They would burn Christians alive. And you think, oh my goodness, here is this massive war machine that is, this sh the story should be over. They just stomp out Christianity as this bizarro, weird little sect, and it's over in a week. And yet... Guess what's not around 2,000 years later? The Roman Empire. I mean, you can go over to Italy and like look at some artifacts. You can go look at the ruins. And guess what is alive and well? The Church of Jesus. I mean, it's right here in this room. It's, right, it's spread throughout the, the world by the millions. 
crossing racial lines, crossing socioeconomic lines, crossing uh, cultural lines, that here's this massive, threatening, powerful horn 2,000 years later, and it's in a history book. You can read about it in Wikipedia. Or think about Zechariah's day. Here, here is this, you know, small little third world underdeveloped country and these massive threatening forces, Babylon and Assyria and their footnotes in history books now. And it just shows you that the ways of the world, brute force is incredibly weak. In the long run, incredibly fragile, incredibly insufficient. And so there's, there's a real um, warning here for us isn't there. This first implication is don't take up the tools of the kingdom of the world. And they feel so tempting because it seems like that's the way you get stuff done is you assert yourself and you move and you pick up strength and you pick up power and this is showing us that 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 is a doomed strategy. It's a doomed strategy. In fact, let me me give you some examples of this. Let's say that you find yourself in conflict with somebody else. Maybe your spouse, maybe a coworker, someone you live with, someone in your family. It doesn't matter. You're in conflict. The human default reaction when people are in conflict is to go into I must win mode. That when you're in conflict... The thing in you is I have to win this argument and prove to the other person that they are wrong and that I am right. And so I will get my arguments together and I will defend myself and I will explain myself and show them why they're the ones that are actually at fault here and not me. It's this, it's this instinct towards power, domination. I will win. And here's the thing. When you go into win mode, let's say that you win. Let's say you, you win the argument. At the end of the day, everyone concedes and says, you were right. You know what you've lost? You lost the relationship. Or at least the relationship has been weakened. Because what does it feel like to lose? It's terrible. What does it feel like to like, have the other person be the victor and feel like you're totally misunderstood, but you couldn't argue your way out of this? And so the relationship is weakened. When you go into... Win mode, you've already lost. Here's another example. Let's say that you're struggling with an addiction. Could be anything. Porn, alcohol, drugs, social media, whatever. Let's say that your attitude towards your addiction is, I got this. Uh, I- I'm in control. I don't need your help. Just leave me alone. I will, I will deal with it. I, will, I, you know, I can stop anytime I want. It's this attitude of kind of digging your heels into uh, self-sufficiency, my strength, and uh, it's, this, it's this refusal to feel weak, refusal to ask for help, refusal to be needy, and, and you know how the story goes. The addiction just gets worse. You can't pull yourself out of the ditch. You, you're unable to manage your own life. There's this real... There is no power in self-sufficiency. It feels like it feels like you're in control, and yet it's incredibly fragile, incredibly insufficient. And so the question for you and for me to ask is where in your life are you taking up the tools of the kingdom of the world? Where you're saying, I will assert my power here. I will be strong here. I will be right here. I will win here. And then the question is, how's that working out for you? 
Because my guess, those are, those are actually the areas of your life that are probably the most fragile. Those are the areas of your life where it might feel like you have a lot of control and power and agency over it. And yet, those are probably the areas of your life that are actually the, the most tenuous. There's an incredible weakness to power, brute force, brute power. And yet, there's a, there's a paradox here because the flip side is also true. And so let's look at the second implication of this. The second half of this paradox is that weakness is incredibly powerful. Weakness is incredibly powerful. When you think about this vision of these horns, and, and, I mean, it's almost like an SNL skit. It's such a caricature. It's such a distorted, exaggerated thing where you have these aggressive, monster powerful nations, and you have little sheep you know, defended by artists, and yet it is not in spite of their weakness that they win, that they're victorious. It's actually because of their weakness that you see their weakness has led to victory. Their weakness is has the pathway to power. Now, this is, plays out in, in all of life. Let me give you another example of this. Um, I'm sure most of you have seen, if not, or at least familiar with Brene Brown's uh, famous TED talk that she did on YouTube years and years ago about shame and vulnerability. If you haven't seen it, the basic gist is she said that when uh, um, you are vulnerable with another human being, that's what opens you up to real deep, meaningful relationship and connection. That the pathway through, the pathway to real meaningful connection is through vulnerability. And I've seen this just in, in my work as a pastor. One of the unique privileges that I have as being a pastor is people will sit down with me and will share with me things about their lives that are, are really vulnerable, where people will come in and, and they'll, they'll, they'll say, Matt, I want, I, want to, I want you to see this part of my heart. I want you to see this part of my story. And that you, they, here's, the, here's the hurts in my marriage or here's... Here's the things I'm struggling with behind closed doors, or here's the loss and the grief that I'm carrying around with me. It's just, it's incredible how vulnerable you and others can be. And I just think about how scary that is. I'm not naturally a very vulnerable person. My guard is up pretty uh, much up a lot of the time. And I think about for somebody to sit down with me and to be that vulnerable, that raw, takes so much courage. It's to, it's to intentionally put yourself in a position of weakness because you're giving away control. You don't know how I'm going to react. You don't know if I'm going to criticize you or reject you based off of what you just shared. You don't know if I'm going to go home and blog about it later that afternoon. Like, you, you don't know. You're, you're, you, are, you are putting yourself in this position of complete vulnerability. And what's crazy is that those are the conversations where I feel so deeply connected to you. Where, where there is, like Brene Brown is right, there is this powerful thing that happens where we're actually talking at this deep heart level like human beings. And it's not just with me, it's, it's any relationship. Any relationship where you choose to make yourself vulnerable, any relationship where you intentionally make yourself weak like that, there's an enormous potential for that relationship to be strengthened, for that relationship to have deep, rich, meaningful connection. Which, which, you know, the, the flip is also true as well, that if you want to be strong, if you want to appear put together and not let anybody see any of the cracks, if you're going to be strong, all of your relationships are going to be relatively weak. They're all going to be relatively shallow, relatively superficial. The pathway to rich, deep, 
powerful meaning connection is through you being weak, through vulnerability. And so just think about, um, uh, think, think about if, the, if the first implication gave us a warning to not take up the tools of the ways of the world, the second implication is a, it gives us an invitation. It invites us into the ways of the kingdom of God, into the ways of weakness, which feels really scary. Feels, you feel out of control. You're totally vulnerable. It kind of feels like being a sheep, totally defenseless. And yet, think about some of the tools of the kingdom of God. Prayer, the Lord's Supper, reading the Bible. You think, that, <laughs> that seems so ineffective. In fact, if you've ever um, been going through a crisis and you have somebody come alongside you and say, hey, by the way, I'm praying for you, isn't there a cynical part of you that says, well, yeah, thanks, but, like, what in the world is that going to do? Thank you for your prayers. That's kind, but, like, that does nothing. Or you yourself, when you're going through a crisis and you're praying, you're asking God for things that you need, isn't there a part of you in the back of your mind that, like, does this even do anything? I feel like I'm in my room by myself talking to the wall. Does this accomplish anything? And yet, God says he will powerfully advance the kingdom of God on this earth through things like prayer which feels so weak, so ineffective, so insufficient. Let me give you another example. Think about compliments. Taking time to intentionally speak a word of blessing to another human being, to speak a word of encouragement to another human being. I was talking with a a woman a couple weeks ago, uh, and she was telling me the story. She grew up at an all-girls summer camp. She grew up up going to an all-girls summer camp. And there was this staff person there, this person uh, who was um, in authority at this place, that any time that they saw her, they would always compliment her hair. Oh, your hair is so awesome. I love your hair today. It's so cool. And she was telling me this story. You know, she's in her 40s now. And she was telling me the story that as a little girl, that was transforming for her because she had big, you know, kind of curly hair. She felt really uh, insecure about her hair felt really self-conscious about her hair. And to have somebody in a position of authority look at her and go out of their way to say, that is actually what I think is amazing about you. That's what's so cool about you. I love that about you. She was telling me the story with tears in her eyes. Tears in her eyes. That that level of healing and transformation took place because of compliments. Now, you think about a compliment in the grand scheme of all the massive problems that are out there in the world. You think, what is a compliment going to do? It does nothing. It's so weak, so small. Tears, life transforming. Compliments, prayer, vulnerability, asking someone for forgiveness, sacrifice, generosity. These things seem so utterly weak, and yet they are invincible. They are forces of nature that the Lord uses to advance his kingdom in the world. And here's what's crazy about this passage, is that God doesn't just invite us into the ways of weakness, he shows us the ways of weakness. He demonstrates it for us, because centuries after this vision, centuries after this crazy vision, God himself, the omnipotent, almighty Lord of the universe, took on flesh, 
which means he became a baby. He became soft. He became vulnerable. He became defenseless. And he was born into a family of carpenters. He shows up not as a warrior, but as an artist. And he lives his whole life in abject poverty. He's experiencing homelessness throughout his whole public ministry. He looks at his disciples at one point and says, foxes have holes, birds of the nest, or birds of the air, they have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And so here's this man who's experiencing homelessness. He's poor and he's saying, this is the kingdom and I'm the king of it. And because he walked around talking about the kingdom, the Roman Empire didn't really like that. And so he eventually got arrested. He was accused of being an insurrectionist. And when you're brought before this, you know, powerful, cruel war machine, you would think, oh my goodness, I have got to defend myself. I've got to explain myself. And you know what he does? He's silent. He shows up, doesn't say a word. He's on trial like a, like a sheep on his way to being slaughtered, just throwing himself at the mercy of an empire that was not really known for being merciful. And so that's when the horns came out. And he was pierced. He was nailed to a tree, nailed to a cross. And he's stripped completely naked, completely exposed, completely vulnerable, completely defenseless. And that's the gospel. And there have been critics of that story for all through the centuries, uh, you know, after that, that have mocked that and have mocked the church and have mocked Christians and said, wait, that's your hero? That's your hope? You're going to put all your hope in that? A, a, A poor, naked man who is executed on a trash heap? That's good news for you? And yet Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that story is the very power of God. It's the power of God. And you think, how in the world can that story have any power to it? Here's how. Because it is that story that shows you the lengths to which God was willing to go in order to forgive you, in order to love you, in order to heal you, in order to reclaim you. And when you know that you have been loved like that, to that degree, that unleashes a transforming power inside of you where nothing can be the same. You know, I heard this story, or I heard this illustration from another pastor making a, making a point about something somewhat related. But the, the point was, if, if someone tells you that they've paid off a debt of yours, you don't really know how to respond unless you know how big the debt was, right? If, uh, if you come home one day and I say, hey, I paid one of your bills, and you're like, oh, what was it? And I said, well, you know, I was hearing the, the, the uh, mailman r- arrived right when I was walking up to, and you had, a, you had a, a letter without a stamp on it. And so I just gave you one of my stamps. I just paid for one of your stamps, you know, 50, 60 cents, whatever it is these days. And uh, you would say, oh, well, thanks. That was really kind of you. Thanks. You know, 50 cent degree of, uh, of, of appreciation. But what if you come home and I told you that I paid off that hospital bill that was hanging over you, that was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of dollars because you didn't have health insurance and your child needed emergency surgery in order to save their life and so you went to the hospital and now you have this massive giant debt and I told you that I paid it all off and the only way that I could pay it off was that we, we, we liquidated all of our assets, we sold our house and we, 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 
we paid off your, that, that hospital bill. That was the bill that we paid off. We, we've declared bankruptcy so that you might be out from under this debt. Now how you will respond? You, you'll, you'll fall down on your knees. You'll, you'll say, I don't, even, I don't even understand what just happened to me. I, I owe my very life to you. When you understand that you have been loved like that, that the God of the universe, who is ultimate, was willing to become you know, at the very bottom for you, give up everything for you, liquidate all of his assets for you to show you this is how much I love you. When that gets into your bones, good grief, it changes everything. There are so many of you in this room that have tasted this life-transforming power of his love and of his grace where your whole life is no longer the same. It's completely reoriented. Entire civilizations have been rearranged because they've tasted this degree of love and this degree of grace. Because you know what happens? When that gets inside of you, you begin to realize, oh my goodness, I no longer have to be right. I no longer have to grab power. I no longer have to be at the top. I can give it all away. I can be weak. I can be mocked. I can fail. There's freedom, real freedom, in tasting and experiencing that life-transforming power of his love. Now, you might hear all this and you think, okay, wow, yes, I'm in. I, I want, how do I get that? How do I get access to that degree of love? And you may have guessed it, but here's how. It's through weakness. It's by you surrendering, by you coming to God and saying, all of my past all of my present, and all of my future, yours. Most people, when they start to get religious, they, they, they still come to God with that kind of instinct of the ways of the world in them. They come to God in strength and say, God, let me list off all the reasons why you should be good to me. I've been a good person. They list out, you pull out the resume. Here are all the good things that I've done. Here are all the things I'm trying to do. And so you're coming to God in strength. Bless me because I've been good. I've been strong. But when you come to God in weakness, you rip up the resume and you come to God and you admit your failures. And when you admit your failures and your sin, that's when you discover the wonder of grace. When you admit that you are needy and that you are weak, that's when you experience this banquet of life-changing love and grace for people like you. But it's only when you become weak it feels like dying. Trusting in someone else, especially God, feels like death. But here's what Jesus said. When you lose yourself, you will find yourself. When you humble yourself, those who are humbled, they will be exalted. And those who exalt themselves, they will be humbled. But the way is through weakness. And what's crazy is that he continues to empower us to walk in the ways of weakness, not in the ways of strength but in the ways of weakness, neediness, dependence upon him. So there's an incredible weakness about power, and there's an incredible power about weakness. There's a warning there for us, and there's an invitation there for us as well. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us humility, that you would free us to be okay with not being okay, that we might get in touch with our neediness, with our helplessness, and we might experience the mysterious power of throwing ourselves at your mercy. And I pray that you would give us a taste of your love in such a way that really would be life transforming.
that would change everything about us, our motivations, our, our desires, our wills, our behaviors. Change us from the inside out through this powerful, weak mystery of the cross. We pray all this in Jesus' name.